couple of announcements this morning. One just disappeared. Did you take it over there? Did you not make that announcement? Yeah. Okay. Another announcement, uh, just informed by Ernie, that we do uh, desperately need a teacher for the pre-K through first grade class of first our second hour. And I'm thinking that if we don't have somebody there by next Sunday, those kids will be in the uh, main auditorium. So we do need some teachers and folks who can take up the slack there as well as on Wednesday night and a couple of other classes. That is getting to be a very important, desperate need. One other thing that I've briefly announced once before, need to uh, hit again a couple of times just so you don't forget it. Maybe some of you are thinking about this and want to add uh, your name to the list of those who are interested. But next summer, we're working to put together a short-term missions trip over to Kiev for primarily those who are high school age to uh, young adult, 16 to 25, that, that age group. I'm not excluding anyone who'd like to go over and help. Working with Jim Dumas, who is one of uh, the men that's worked with Jim Myers, worked with Jody Brown for a number of years prior to that in, in uh, Belarus, running uh, a lot of different outreach ministries to uh, children, children's hospitals, cancer wards, uh, youth camps during the summer. And so we're working together to put together a quality-type experience so that I don't think there's anything quite like being about 16, 17, 18 years old and going somewhere outside of this country and sitting down and giving somebody the gospel, and they just act like you gave them the greatest present in the world, which you did, because you just don't get that kind of response while you're here in the U.S. And missionary or being a pastor is one of the greatest careers, greatest options in life, and when you're 15, 16, 17 years of age, if you've got the gift of pastor-teacher or God is gifting you in evangelism, an ability to teach children, communicate the Word, then that's the time to begin to recognize it so that you can adequately prepare. The sad thing that's happened in many churches is, is uh, people don't get serious about their spiritual life or recognize their spiritual gift often until they're in their 20s and 30s, and by then... It's too late, and they take some kind of second-best solution to try to uh, shortcut preparation for uh, any kind of ministry, and the body of Christ suffers as a result. So one of our goals is just to lay out the options so that people can get a little experience, go on short, take a short-term missions trip, and to emphasize the importance of missions, also to strengthen the relationship that we have here at Preston City Bible Church with uh, Jim Myers over in Kiev. So we're working on that. There's uh, four or five people down in uh, the Houston area who are also interested in, in going. So we're, we're going to try to limit it to no more than ten. You don't want to go over with a large group of people, just a small group, in order to maximize the opportunity. Okay, let's... Uh, Bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are prepared for the study of God's Word, ready to teach. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to come before your throne of grace. Father, we thank you for this nation that we have that gives us the freedoms that we enjoy to be able to gather together and freely teach your word. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct the leaders that we have in this nation, both in Congress, the President, and the military, especially in view of the apparent invasion of Iraq. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and that uh, you would just make it uh, possible for us to have victory, that you would blind the enemy to what is going on and that that uh, you would uh, work in this situation to give greater uh, security to this nation. Father, we continue to pray for this church, for its future. We thank you for the tremendous outreach ministry you have provided through the tapes, through the Internet, through the videos. We pray that you would continue to uh, bless that those ministries and, and that those who are positive to your word would hear about uh, this opportunity to study your word. Father, we just pray that as we study your word this morning, that we would be receptive to the challenge that you present to us. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. So great conference this last week down in Houston. Spent three nights with uh, uh, Richard Rose, who's one of the pastors who comes to the WHW conference, which incidentally starts a week from Monday out in Los Angeles. And uh, he has a church that isn't uh, very far from where my father lives in Houston, so it's a tremendous opportunity the Lord's provided to uh, let me go down there and and, uh, teach at his church and also to help uh, take care of a number of things with my dad while I'm down there. And it was also uh, fun this time to see there was something happened that was a little bit different, and that was there were a number of people. There's usually a number of people that show up that are. it's obvious they're not in the local congregation because of all their white faces. But uh, usually they're people I know, as well as tapers with Preston City Bible Church. But this last time there were a number of people that showed up that I didn't know at all, which uh, indicates that uh, a broader number of people who are tapers, who are not necessarily personal friends or acquaintances of mine, are also beginning to show up just to have an opportunity to meet me and and to hear the word taught face to face instead of just listening to me on a tape. So that's a major shift that's uh, taken place, which is a very positive thing. And as Jim pointed out from that letter he read earlier, there are a number of people who are not only getting the tapes and listening to them, but are passing them on. I must have had five or six different people tell me how uh, they get a tape and they give it to a friend of theirs and then that goes to somebody else and then that goes to their mother and then that goes to a cousin and that goes to a doctor. and You know, there's a chain. So for there may be one person getting getting the tape initially and then there's five or six other people who are listening to the, to the tapes. And I've heard that from other people, different parts of the country. So even though we may be sending out tapes to about, I don't know, maybe a 100 different people or 150 different people every month. What is actually happening is happening is probably about five or 600 people are actually listening to those tapes. So that's quite a, an impact that this church is having throughout this country and around the world. Also, last Monday night, I had an opportunity to spend some time at a, at a party with uh, Moses Anwabiko. Now, Moses Anwabiko was ordained out of Baraka 
four years ago. I think it was 97. And uh, he and his brother from, Ni- I think they're from Nigeria, but he goes over to Africa to several different countries and is an evangelist. And last February, he took, we sent him a set of everything that had been done up to that point here at Preston City Bible Church. So that rack of tapes was taken over to Africa, and then they have people there who are duplicating tapes and distributing them in Africa. So each year, each February, we need to update him and give him another set of, I mean, a set of everything that's been done since the previous uh, distribution so that he can take those over. And he was uh, quite uh, positive about the impact that those tapes were having in Africa. So you never know. We may just be a small little country church up here in the cornfields of uh, southeastern Connecticut, but we're having an impact throughout the world. So it's uh, with modern technology, it allows us to to uh, take the word and, and is a tremendous missionary outreach. Take the word and have it taught all over the world. Also allows me to be two places at one time sometimes. So uh, modern technology is a wonderful thing. Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Now, this last section of 1 Corinthians 6 through 12 has some uh, a couple of extremely difficult passages to understand. And there are some passages and verses in here that have always bothered me because I've heard them taught different ways, been never been satisfied with the usual applications and implications that are drawn from some of these these verses. And I think it's because people are not, especially evangelicals, are very uncomfortable with the whole concept of sex. I think and part of that is due to the misinterpretation of these uh, verses, specifically verse verses 16 through 18. Because these have been historically misunderstood, it's created a, a, an image where in, in many, among many Christians, you know, the greatest sins, the worst sins are sexual sins. But morality and morals are immorality, and moral sins are not class, or do not seem to be classified among the worst sins in a new number of passages in the New Testament. The worst sins are your mental attitude sins of arrogance, uh, other mental attitude sins that go along with that usually in terms of bitterness and jealousy and anger and revenge motiv- motivation. All of these seem to spawn a host of other uh, either sins of the tongues, uh, other sins of the tongue or uh, physical sins or overt sins. But here in this passage, we have an uh, an interesting uh, scenario because of the emphasis on sexual immorality and its re- and the problems they had in Corinth. There are two things that are important to understand in terms of background. The first has to do with the the role of of ritual sex in the fertility religions and idolatry that was prevalent in and in, uh, in Greece, and the second is to understand something about the philosophical climate of ancient Greece. In Platonism, you have a dichotomy between it's uh, you have a dualism 
that emphasizes a dichotomy between matter and idea so that anything that is material is separated from anything that is spiritual so that one does not have any significant impact on the other. Whatever happens in the material realm has nothing to do with what's going on in the spiritual realm. And matter is often thought of as being evil, limiting, restricting, whereas that which is spiritual is good. So you have this this dichotomy and this dualism in life so that they have the idea that whatever happens to the physical body, whatever happens to the material body, is not very, it has nothing to do with what happens spiritually, and it's basically evil. The result of this is that the physical body of man is reduced in significance. It either has a very limited significance, all the way to just being downright evil. And, of course, this is the kind of thinking that produced uh, monasticism and uh, fed into a lot of asceticism in the early church. And, and early Platonism went through several modifications, and by the time of the early church, it became known as Neoplatonism uh, through some of the secondary and tertiary disciples of Plato, like Porphyry. And... Augustine, who was the, one of the great church fathers, considered one of the great church fathers and one of the great founders and architects of what became Roman Catholic theology, was a Neoplatonist. And so you have these elements of Neoplatonism and Platonic thought influencing Christianity all through the early church, where anything having to do with the physical body is just not important, it's insignificant, and there was that that gave rise to the whole doctrine of celibacy for the priesthood and the whole idea that uh, sexual relations in marriage were simply for the purpose of of uh, uh procreation and having children wasn't created for pleasure and if you have pleasure in sex that then you ought to feel guilty about it and of course that produces a whole array of catholic guilt and all of this goes back to the influence of greek philosophy on early christianity but the, the Corinthians had a slightly different problem as because of the influence of, of Platonism, and that is it caused them to think that you could do just about anything, and it really didn't matter. It didn't affect you spiritually. Whatever you did in the physical body had no relationship whatsoever to the soul or the spiritual life. They are just completely separated and completely distinguished. So you have two things going on as background that you must understand and you must think in terms of that when you read this passage. If you don't, you're not reading it like a Corinthian would read it. You're reading it like an American would read it. And so you're going to end up with the wrong interpretation, some wrong conclusions. Because some of the things that Paul says here sound a little bizarre and a little extreme if you don't realize that the the the, the significance of what he is saying in light of this background. A third thing that, uh, well, those are the first two things that we must understand in terms of background, and then another thing that we must understand if we're going to properly interpret this passage is that everything that is said here is not coming from the Apostle Paul. 
And now that's a difficult thing for interpreters to deal with because in the original Greek text, as I've said many times, the original, especially in the first two or three centuries, when they wrote, they wrote everything in, in straight capital letters so that if you have a verse such as all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, it just looks like this. And it just runs on, and sometimes they, they split words between lines. So it's very difficult to read, but you don't have any punctuation in the original. Punctuation is usually indicated through the use of various grammatical and syntactical devices. So it's not, and they don't have quotation marks. You don't have a statement like, they said, comma, quote, and then you have the statement, period, close quote. So sometimes you just have to really understand the sense of what's going on before you realize that there are often quotations within a passage that are just statements that may not reflect the author or Paul's view, but they are the words that are, are in this case, various. there are at least three slogans in this passage that were common statements being made by the Corinthians. And so Paul states them, and then he refutes them. But in many of your English Bibles, there's no indication of that. So you look at a passage like verse 12, which begins, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And that may sound like something that the Apostle Paul would say, but Paul doesn't say that. This is a slogan or catchphrase that the Corinthians are using to justify their licentiousness. They're saying, all things are lawful for me. Everything's okay. I'm saved by grace. All the sins are paid for. Everything is is just fine. Everything is is legal. And Paul contrasts that by saying, but not all things are profitable. See, he's going to quote their own words back to them and then juxtapose the divine viewpoint. This is a tremendous technique for teaching because it helps people see more clearly the truth of God's word. It puts divine viewpoint in a little more tighter focus than you would otherwise uh, see it. And a lot of times we don't always learn, no matter how many times you may hear somebody in the pulpit teach a certain doctrine, you then go home and you don't really see how it applies to something going on in your particular career or in your family life or your home until you see it specifically juxtaposed and at point and counterpoint to what is being uh, what is being said. And then all of a sudden you see the light go on. I see that happen many times when I'm teaching. This was a point that I'm trying to, or a, a, a technique we're trying to develop in with the teachers in prep school. And last week we had our prep school meeting we've been trying to have for about three months and go over curriculum and ideas. And one of the questions that we needed to ask was that since a year ago when we implemented this new curriculum and new approach to prep school, uh, we have uh, operated on that initial curriculum. Well, it was time to do a little debriefing and critique that curriculum and see if there was anything missing. What is it? Is there anything we're teaching too much of? Is there anything that we're not teaching enough of? And Al Dowdy came up with a great suggestion, and he made the observation that 
with his kids, and this is true for many of you. I don't know how many of you pay close attention to their homework assignments, but one of the things that takes place, in, especially, in, I think, in the area of reading assignments, comprehension, and especially in liberal arts, I find that there's more dangerous human viewpoints slipped in in liberal arts classes from uh, elementary school all the way up through college than necessarily in your sciences. It's there as well, but it's more subtle in the liberal arts classes because you're reading literature, you're reading various stories, and these stories are designed to influence the values and the judgments of the person that's reading. And if you don't keep your your guard up, then all of a sudden you start to absorb these human viewpoint opinions and ideas, and, and you're not really aware of it. And frequently in classes, class assignments, the kids are given assignments, read a paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, and they have to do with some issue of multiculturalism or environmentalism or some other liberal agenda. And then the students have to answer various comprehension-type questions which involve value judgments and application from what they've read. And what's happened in a very subtle way is they're being indoctrinated in human viewpoint. So Al had noticed this and said, well, is there anything we can do about this? So we thought, well, this would be a great idea for most of the teachers are also parents, but this is something that many of you who aren't teachers who are parents and maybe some who are out there who are listening to tapes can also participate in this. As you are observing the assignments that your kids are working on, looking at the books they have to read, the things they have to, the projects they have to do, when you spot things that are that fit this particular uh, strategy, and you see particular examples of it, write it down, Xerox the assignment, whatever it is, bring the, that in, and we're going to start correlating this, and then maybe in another six or seven months when we have some good examples of human viewpoint that is being taught and indoctrinated in the public school system, then we can come back and we can de- design a curriculum around that so that we can start teaching at each grade level, because this starts as early as kindergarten, as each grade level all the way up, we can start counter, uh, counter-training our kids so that we can present a biblical case to them and they can become more and more aware of what is being taught in the schools and that that's not really what they should believe as a Christian that there are there are biblical differences. So it's important for Christians to have their their grid up all the time to be aware of the fact that the cosmic system around us is constantly promoting its agenda, its worldview, its value system, and if we aren't aware of just how that's being shaped and molded to influence us, then too often we wake up one day and we realize that it's had its consequences. Well, this was true in Corinth as well, and is one of the major problems is that coming out of their uh, pagan background with the emphasis on on both the the fertility religions and the emphasis on Platonic dualism, this was influencing their views of the church. So they... They have a very licentious idea. Well, we're now all free in Christ. And this is how this passage really connects back to, uh, all the way back to chapter 5 because of their lax attitude towards this one individual 
who was living with his stepmother and having sexual uh, having a sexual relationship with his stepmother so verses 12 through 20 at the end of chapter 6 form a conclusion to the previous two chapters but they also are going to if you look at it structurally also sets the stage for talking about issues or, or for the issues that Paul is going to cover beginning in chapter 7 and one of the first issues that Paul has to deal with in chapter 8 is the problem of food that is sacrificed to idols and the issue of doubtful things. So that is uh, foreshadowed here in verses 12 and 13. Paul states here in verse 12, all the, the, the statement that he is quoting from them, the slogan is that all things are lawful for me. And there we have the word ex estin. The Greek word ex, estin, E-X, E-S-T-I-N. Looks like this. In the Greek, E-X, E-S-T-I-N. And it means all things are possible or all things are permissible. And their idea is, having picked up this licentiousness, is that now that I'm saved, I'm in Christ, Christ paid the penalty for all my sins, I can do anything, it's just fine, it won't have any real impact on my spiritual life. See, they're sort of blending. See, this is what happens, we see this all the time, people get some Christian ideas and then they just sort of blend that with some human viewpoint that they already have and they come up with a whole new twist on things. And their idea was that, well, since all things are okay now, Christ paid for all the sins, then then, and then here comes this platonic idea that any sin that I commit in the body really doesn't have any impact whatsoever on my spiritual life or on my soul. So I can just uh, do whatever I want to do and be involved in any kind of, of uh, sexual relationship that I, I want. It doesn't have any impact on anything else. So Paul first states their, their principle that all things are lawful for me. And he counters it by saying, but not all things are profitable. That's the principle. As a believer, we have to recognize that, that even though we have freedom in Christ, Galatians 5.1, Christ died to set us free, even though we have freedom in Christ and that there are many activities that we may engage in as believers that are not sin per se, they are uh, activities that might create problems for other people around us at the time. So th- for that reason, we have to exercise some caution. And there are also some things that may be just good things for us to do, but they're not really priority. There may be many things in life, many activities in life that are wonderful activities, and there's nothing wrong with them. But if we spend a lot of time getting involved in them, then it's going to take us away from Doctrine is going to take us away from Bible class because of scheduling conflicts or just because we only have so much time in, in life to do things, and, and it will be a distraction. So even though there are many things that may be good, they are not the best. And the thing that destroys most people in their spiritual life, that, that, that is the initial subtle assault, is not that they make a decision between that which is good and that which is bad and choose the bad, but the choice is between the good and the better, and they choose the good rather than the best. 
and they put something else that's not a sin in place of uh, the importance of Bible doctrine and the application of Bible doctrine. So the Corinthians are using this particular slogan to justify their their licentiousness because they are, in effect, rejecting the authority of God. And so there's an interesting play on words here because the word ex estin is very closely related to the Greek word ex usia, which has to do with authority. And so they are rejecting God's authority as well, in, even though there is... Uh, there is a, a certain level of, of activity that is permissible. What they're having trouble with is learning that there is no such thing as unbridled freedom. There is no such thing as unbridled freedom. This is a problem many people in this country do not understand, and that is that when you have unrestrained freedom, it destroys freedom for all because if I do everything that I want to do and have the freedom to do sooner or later, I am going to infringe on your freedom and I am going to cause some sort of restraint to occur on your freedom. So freedom must always be exercised with responsibility and a sensitivity towards others. Furthermore, freedom always coexists with authority. Freedom is not the absence of authority, but discipline within a correct authority. Freedom is not absence of authority. That's what, that is a human viewpoint concept, and that's exactly the problem they had. And you'll run into people who think, well, I'm free. You usually see adolescents, once they leave home, go through a time of rebellion because they think, oh, I'm free from my parents now so I can do whatever I want to, and then they realize that the authority that their parents represented is just the authority that God built into creation, and they can't go do whatever they want to do without reaping the consequences. So the principle is that freedom and authority must coexist. When you have freedom without authority, the result is anarchy. When you have freedom without authority, the result is anarchy. When everybody's just doing whatever they want to do and there's no authority, no restraint, then everybody, everything just falls apart, everything runs amok. On the other hand, authority without freedom is tyranny. Authority without freedom is tyranny. Freedom clearly includes the right of privacy, the right of self-determination, the right to hold your own uh, opinions and and to uh, have property and to hold property. Freedom is the heritage of our birth here in the U.S., but it is a freedom that recognizes the role of authority. But when the government exercises too much authority, then what happens is freedoms start to be limited, and then we get into tyranny. So the Corinthians have failed to understand the significance of authority and freedom, and so they're just abusing their freedom that they can do everything. And Paul says, no, remember, not all things are profitable. He then goes on to say, all things are lawful for me because I'm free in Christ. That is, all things that are not specifically sin. But he says, I will not be mastered by anything. And there Paul recognizes the principle that when you are free and you give yourself to whatever you want to, it can eventually enslave you as a habit because it's not being used under or in relationship to doctrinal principles. 
So this introduces us to a concept we'll develop much later on in 1 Corinthians 7. And so for right now, I just want to go over some of the key principles related to the uh, uh, use of doubtful things and how to make decisions related to areas that are not specifically addressed by the Word of God. And there are four laws that are involved here, and the first is the law of liberty, the law of liberty. And this law recognizes that God has saved us and set us free from the slave market of sin. But if you look carefully at Romans chapter 6, at the instant of salvation, the only thing that happened was the slave master changed. The slave master changed in Romans 6 from being a slave to the sin nature to being a slave to righteousness. As a believer, you're not independent. You're not autonomous. And this is how Paul is going to end this discussion by reminding the Corinthians that they were bought by a price, and they do have a new owner, and that is Jesus Christ. See, this is an economic concept. We've been set free from the slave market of sin, but we are not set free totally. We've just been purchased by a new master, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So biblically speaking, we have freedom, and we have the freedom to engage in any activity that is not sinful and any activity that will not cause us to fail before the Lord. But the problem is that many of those activities can be distractions for us in the spiritual life. So there are also restrictions, and some of those activities can be distractions at times for other people. But we do have the freedom to engage in any activity that is not specifically forbidden or prohibited by the Word of God, despite the fact that there are many Christians who have, for their own personal reasons, decided that it's not wise for them to engage in this activity or to engage in that activity. What happens with the legalists is they start mandating those decisions on other Christians. And it may be that that one believer decides that because of particular weaknesses in his sin nature, it's not wise for him to drink alcoholic beverages. But then if he says, well, it's not wise for anybody else to, that's when you start moving into legalism. Sometimes you have to say as a believer that this is fine, others can do this, such and so activity, but I can't. It would just be too much of a, of a problem for me. We do have liberty. The law of liberty is the first law. The second law is the law of love. And this is the principle that takes other believers into consideration. It's under the law of love that we have concern for the weaker brother so that instead of exercising our freedom in some areas when we know that there is someone present who has a particular problem, we are not going to uh, rub their nose in it. We're not going to show off and emphasize our freedom because it may make them susceptible to some temptation. Now, let me tell you how this works. This doesn't mean that if you go out to eat in a public restaurant and Weaker Brother, Joe Weaker Brother, sitting at another table, and you know that Joe Weaker Brother is an alcoholic, that you decide, well, I'm not going to have a glass of wine because if he sees me have a glass of wine, then that may cause him to stumble. Let me tell you, if if that's the way you reason, which is the reasoning of an extremely superficial, immature Christian, that's what dominates most Christianity, is I won't do such and so because if somebody sees me do it, they might sin. Well, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, do not ever go out of your front door. 
because there's just about any behavior that you can engage in that someone else can look at and use to rationalize and justify their irresponsible behavior based on that. So it's not just something restricted to alcoholic consumption or uh, any other uh, activity that's usually brought up, but it, but um, this is the idea of causing someone to such stumble. First of all, I always love Dr. Ryrie used to say, for somebody to stumble, they have to be moving. And see, most of the people who raise a problem with this, well, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't chew, or you can't go with girls that do, that whatever happens when they... Whatever happens when they when when they see it, it's the it's what should be a more mature believer that gets upset. It's always some pastor or some deacon or some Sunday school teacher, some Christian who's been around a while, are the ones that get upset. And this is not talking about the older legalists. See, Paul leaves out one category of person in his discussion in First Corinthians eight, and that's the legalists. See, there's three categories of people. There's the grace-oriented believer. There's the weaker brother, and then there's the older believer that's a legalist. And see, you may offend a legalist, and that's fine. Jesus offended him all the time. You know, he'd sit down and go to a uh, go to a party with a bunch of uh, tax collectors and prostitutes, and he would drink wine. And he would uh, enjoy the banquet feast. And the Pharisees came along and said, well, John the Baptist was this ascetic, and he didn't do any of these things. And you come along, and you're a drunkard, and you're a glutton. See, Jesus didn't overindulge, but the fact that he indulged, they extrapolated it and exaggerated it and accused him of being a drunkard and a, and a, and a glutton. Now, the law of love says that I'm not. it's not that I'm not going to have a glass of wine because you know, somebody across the way might walk by and see me drinking a glass. I saw a pastor not long ago. He, he wanted to have a, a rum and Coke. So he had the way to bring it in a coffee cup. <laughs> so, you know, you have to just sit right out there in front of God and everybody and have that scotch and water so they'll understand what real freedom is. But it's not that you're afraid that somebody across the way might see you. The, the, the application of the principle that we'll see in 1 Corinthians 8 is that if you go out to lunch with somebody who is an alcoholic or recovering alcoholic, has a particular weakness there, you don't say, hey, Joe, let me buy you a beer. You know, you don't specifically put something in front of them that is going to cause them to stumble. It's not this passive idea that some behavior I engage in is going to somehow be a, be a justification for somebody to sin. Let me tell you, anything you do can cause somebody else to give somebody else the opportunity to justify their sin. So that's, that's the principle under the law of love is that you manifest uh, a concern for where the weaker brother is. And the fact that what you do may cause him, you don't want to put anything specifically in front of him. So at certain instances, you may choose not to exercise your freedom. It's not a principle that you choose never to exercise freedom. You may choose that, but it's, these are not universal principles that you, that it's either uh, never exercise the freedom or exercise the freedom. You can choose when and where you will exercise your freedom. 
Third, you have the law of expediency. This law considers the unbeliever and the fact that the believer, and sometimes this applies to believers, that the believer has, or unbeliever has set up, has a misconception of Christianity. And they have certain ideas of what makes a person a Christian, and sometimes these are right and sometimes they're wrong. But to be effective in being able to communicate grace to them, whether it's the gospel to an unbeliever or just being able to uh, uh, develop a relationship with a believer so that you can begin to help them understand the word a little better, it's better for you not to exercise your freedom because that would just cause a distraction and confusion and raise non-essential issues that would be a distraction from the gospel. So the law of expediency is to set something aside so that it won't be a distraction. Even though the other person may be wrong, even though they have, they have uh, uh, misconceptions about Christianity, you're not going to let that become an issue in the process of, of witnessing to them. And then the fourth law is the law of supreme sacrifice. And supreme sacrifice is directed toward God and involves giving up certain things in life in order to serve the Lord in a more specialized capacity. And this is something that that may involve, uh, usually you relate it to a missionary, missionary who is willing to go live in another culture and give up many things that they could enjoy here in the United States in order to go serve the Lord and to communicate the gospel to someone in another culture. I'm always reminded of a man that whenever I think about this, this man was a, I met him one time. His name, I believe, was Richard Sackman. And he was a missionary and had been a missionary in India for many years. And he came back on sabbatical and was taking a course at Dallas Seminary one summer when I was in summer school, sat next to me. And I didn't know much about him. He was a very quiet man. And and he was in his probably 50s at the time. He may not even be, be alive anymore. But I found out from a mutual friend that he had been a missionary in India for 30 years and lived in a room in a home that was probably not much bigger than your living room, your dining room and kitchen. And the smaller your kitchen and dining room is, the better it fits the analogy. And he lived in a very small rural village in India and slept on a pallet on the dirt floor in his home. And he had lived that way and raised, I think, three or four children, had married an Indian woman not long after he went to India, and yet he had had a fantastic ministry to Hindus in India, and it was years before he ever saw the first convert. Well, that's the law of expediency and operation, and this is one of the problems that we have today on the mission field. I'm trying to get the, some specific statistics. I remember in the... Uh, mid-80s, hearing those who were teaching on missions uh, suggest that in the 90s that as many as 60 or 70 percent of the mission force sent out from the United States of America would retire from the field. So many of the World War II generation, after they were involved in the war, traveled all over the world, decided they wanted to do something to go back and take the gospel to the places that they had seen devastated. So they came back to the U.S., they went through seminary and went back out on the field. And I'm not talking about people who are necessarily correct theologically, uh, 
from from Roman Catholics to Methodists to Presbyterians to Evangelicals. There was just a tremendous mission force that went out after World War II. But remember, many of those missionaries also struggled through the Great Depression in the 30s, and so they had grown up in an environment where many of them had learned to do without. And they went back on the mission field, and they were able to do great things. But now we face another crisis. Many spoiled Americans who have grown up on television and fast food, and they say that the baby boom generation is the last generation that learned how to cook for themselves. You know, if you're younger, I would suggest if you're younger than 40, you probably uh, eat a lot of prepared foods, and you don't go to the store and just buy the raw materials and cook for yourself. How are you going to do it on the mission field? You're not. You're going to fall apart after the first term. That's exactly what's happening. What's needed to have a successful missions program from any client nation is people who apply the law of expediency and go to places like like Kazakhstan and India, places down in Central America and South America. But, you know, you can't go to the market and pick up a, a microwave dinner. You can't go and pick up things. You, you have to learn how to cook. And, and all of a sudden what happens is these pansy Christians that we produced in America – go overseas for one term and whine and cry about it and come home. And what you have to do to really impact a society with the gospel is stay there for the rest of your life. And yet here are people who are probably called by God and gifted to be able to do this, but because they have no maturity, because they've grown up in a in such a self-absorbed society and they have never been taught how to live and handle life, without all of the uh, wonderful luxuries that we enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then when it comes to sacrifice, they just simply can't do it. They don't have the spiritual uh, courage and the spiritual ability to do that. And that's all part of the law of supreme sacrifice. So Paul is beginning to emphasize this and foreshadow this in verse 12. And the emphasis that, Believers need to think about the fact that even though it's legitimate for them to enjoy all of the pleasures of the United States, maybe they should give it up to go be a missionary. Not that being a missionary is something more spiritual, but if that's where God wants you, you're never, ever going to be happy if you don't follow that direction from the Lord. Then we come to verse 13. Verse 13 presents another slogan that the Corinthians were using in order to justify sexual immorality. See, their idea was, you know, the body just has these natural urges. You want to eat, you want to drink, you want to have sex. It's just a physical urge. And sex is no different from wanting to eat or wanting to drink. And actually, it's an urge you really can't control. It just seems so so overwhelming at times. And the lust and the hormones and everything combine, and it makes it very difficult to, to resist. And it's just a bodily function, so why... Why resist it? So the slogan was, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. And then Paul contrasts that and says, but God, or they go on and they say, but God, excuse me, it's, there's some debate over this. I think the whole statement from foods down to God will destroy both it and them is part of the slogan. It starts off, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. In other words, they're, they're just going to say food, you know, just physical need, just as you eat, uh, that's just as natural as, as sex. And anyway, God is going to destroy 
food and the stomach. The material body is irrelevant. That comes out of Platonism. The physical body is just irrelevant. It's going to be destroyed. What goes on and on for all eternity is just the soul. But remember, and we, I've taught this the last two or three night, uh, nights, lessons in, in uh, salvation, that man has three components. He's created body, soul, and spirit. He has a human spirit. The human spirit died at salvation. And the image of God is represented... As the soul and the human spirit, God created man, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in his image and likeness. And God put that, that immaterial part, the soul and the spirit, inside a physical body. But he didn't just come along and say, oh, gee, what, what will it look like today? Well, I think I'm going to give him two legs and two arms and a head, and we're going to make man look this way. God didn't operate that way. God in his omniscience knows all the knowable. And God in his omniscience knew that eventually this creature would sin and that God was going to provide the redemptive solution for that sin. That would involve the incarnation. And in the incarnation, infinite God would basically scrunch himself down into a physical body. And that physical body would have to be one through which God could reveal his glory and reveal himself, and that is exactly the role that occurred in the human body of Jesus of Nazareth. So there's all kinds of bodies God could have given man. Just think of all the bodies that we see in the animal kingdom. Beyond that, just look at all the bodies that, that humans come up with in their imagination to people all of the worlds in all these sci-fi movies. There's all kinds of ways that God could have designed your body and my body. But the body of Homo sapien was designed to be the way it is because it was going to house the second person of the Trinity and it would be the highest and best possible physical home for God to inhabit to accomplish his mission and to reveal himself. So in that, from the very beginning of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the scripture says that the human body has significance and value. Furthermore, there never is a time when the soul exists without some sort of home, some sort of body. We've studied in Luke chapter 16 with the story of Lazarus and the rich man, that even after Lazarus and the rich man die and they go to Abraham's bosom and uh, torments respectively, that even there there is some sort of interim body before eventually there is for the believer a resurrection body. And that interim body can experience pain, and that interim body can experience pleasure. And so there's always some sort of home for the soul. Now, the Greeks argued that, well, the body just disappeared because the only thing that mattered really was, was the soul. So Paul answers their objection here, and he says, uh, Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God's redemptive work, the sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit, isn't restricted to just the soul. It impacts the body. That's the whole point we studied earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.16, and where Paul is going to conclude with this in 
in, in verse 19, and that is that the body itself, your physical body, is also sanctified and set apart to the Lord at the instant of salvation. And he takes them right back to positional truth that at the instant of salvation, your physical body is set apart to the Lord for his service. The Holy Spirit sanctifies it and sets it apart as the home for the indwelling of the presence of Jesus Christ, and it becomes a temple for that indwelling of the, of the Holy Spirit. So your body is important. Now, he's not saying, okay, now you have to uh, make sure that you become a vegetarian and eat all the right foods, and you can't eat sodium nitrates or any chemical additives, and you have to be obsessive-compulsive about everything you put in your mouth because it affects the body, and, and the body's been sanctified. That's, that's not his point. His point is simply a juxtaposition of the fact that the body has no value, no significance, and material things related to the body don't affect the spiritual life whatsoever with the counterpoint that physical things do affect the soul. That's all he's saying. He's not saying don't go be out hyper-obsessive uh, about everything and make sure that, that you have the perfect weight and the perfect size and take care of all your Nutritionally, now that's important in terms of responsibility, but don't get wrapped around the axle on stuff like that and try to make this passage say that you should never eat anything or smoke anything or do anything that might eventually uh, affect the body in a negative way. That's not where Paul is coming from. That's not his orientation. He is simply countering the view that the body is irrelevant and stating that no, the body is relevant. And it is important God designed a physical body from the very beginning of man. And there is an intricate and intimate connection between the soul and the spirit and the body. They do not operate uh, independently of one another. So he says that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And then furthermore in verse 14, he states that... Now, God has not only raised the Lord. See, he goes into the whole concept of physical bodily resurrection. If the body wasn't important, then Jesus Christ would not have been raised bodily and physically from the grave. And this, of course, will be the subject of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the greatest chapters in, in developing and understanding the significance of Christ's physical resurrection. And Paul makes an application. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, that is, physically and bodily, but will also raise us up through his power. That is, eventually we will be raised from the dead, and we will receive a future resurrection body. In other words, the body is important, and it's important for the soul to be associated with a body. Then in verse 15, he takes it to the next level, talking about the relationship of all of this to members in the body of Christ. This foreshadows the discussion of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? It's not just your soul. It's you. It's a package deal. You can't just look at yourself, I'm just nothing but a soul. You are a soul, spirit, and body. That is a package deal. And somehow that is, we don't know exactly how, but even though uh, you receive a resurrection body, you will still be recognized as yourself. For some of us, we're going to be glad to get that resurrection body and 
deal with some of these other problems that we face with our own physical bodies, but there will be a physical body, and we it will be apparent to each other who we are. The disciples had no trouble, well, at times they did, but generally they had no trouble recognizing Jesus. He could sort of veil his appearance so that they didn't recognize him on occasion, but generally they were able to recognize him. So when you get your resurrection body, uh, you will be able to uh, identify yourself, and so will other people. Then we come to one of the, a couple of the more difficult passages to, to interpret. Do you not know that he who is joined to a uh, prostitute is one body with her? And then he quotes a passage from Genesis, which ties it together with uh, which makes makes it apparent. It seems like a superficial connection to to marriage. Genesis two twenty four, he quotes, "For the two shall become one flesh." Now, well, I've heard people say, "Well, what this means is that whenever you have sex, whenever a man and a woman have sex, whether they're married or not, it's it's like a marriage union." I've even heard some people say that that's what really makes a marriage is the sexual union. Once that occurs, you're married, whether you whether it's You've had a formal wedding or marriage or not. Remember, we have to understand the background here. What they were saying is that going to the temple prostitute and engaging in sex with the temple prostitute had no impact on their spiritual life. Now, what Paul is going to say is the Bible says that when a man and a woman marry, they have soul intimacy because of their love for one another, and the sexual relationship is an expression of that soul intimacy that enhances and develops that soul intimacy. And what happens when you break it down, you start having sex outside of marriage, sex apart from marriage, just sex for personal pleasure, then what's happening is you're breaking down that relationship between the physical expression and the soul, and it destroys your capacity for to love in the soul because sex then becomes nothing more than self-gratification, and you're just trying to take care of a bodily need like you're hungry and you go eat a good meal or you're thirsty and you go drink something you enjoy. So now you're just treating sex as if it's nothing more than a than a physical act when, in fact, the very statement, the two shall become one flesh, indicates that that physical intimacy enhances soul intimacy. And so the point, the, the major point that Paul is illustrating from his quote from Genesis 2.24 is that it's clear from the, from, from the early part of Genesis that physical activities of the body do impact the soul and the spiritual life. And then he makes another connection in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. When you, when a man and a woman are married and one of them engages in sex outside of marriage, it's a violation of the covenant and it's a breakdown of the union. And he's saying you have been joined with Christ. So when you go down to the temple and get involved with this temple prostitute, you are being covenantally unfaithful to Jesus Christ. You are a part of the church, the bride of Christ. And you're breaking that vow, so to speak, by analogy. doesn't mean they lose salvation. You're breaking that vow by, uh, by application when you go down and you have sex with the temple prostitute. So what's the command? Flee sexual immorality. 
And then he goes on to say, Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, that statement is the one that's lifted out of context, and most evangelicals uh, read that and say, Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits immorality sins against his own body. It's a, it's a separate category of sin. Every other sin is outside the body. But, oh, when it comes to sexual sin... That is worse. This is the passage they go to. Unfortunately, this statement is a slogan. It's another slogan from the Corinthians. They were saying, look, every sin that a man does is outside the body. That's their statement. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. That's their dualism. Sin doesn't really affect the soul. It's just outside the body. This is Every sin is that way. And Paul counters and says, but he who commits immorality sins against his own body. Other sins are against the body, too. What about drug abuse? What about any, any number of other irresponsible behaviors that we have that affect our, our, our physical bodies? That's a sin against the body as well. So he's, Paul, don't make, don't, don't misunderstand the verse by missing the point that there's a slogan and a response here. The, the human viewpoint statement is, every sin's just outside the body. And his, Paul's response is, no. And he's just dealing with sexual immorality in context. It doesn't exclude other sins. He says, the sexual immorality is a sin against the home body. And by the way, so many other sins. And then he ties it into the application back in conclusion, to positional truth. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The Holy Spirit is in each and every believer, and at the instant of salvation indwells each and every believer, and at that point sets the physical body apart as the home for the indwelling of the second person of the Trinity. It becomes a temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so because of positional truth, your body has been set aside and sanctified, and it's not just your soul, not just your spiritual life to be concerned about, but your body as well. Your body is just as important in Christianity as the soul and the spirit because it all makes you, you. And that's his emphasis. Don't try to make Paul say more than he's saying here. He is simply countering the argument that the body and the physical is irrelevant and it doesn't have any impact on the spiritual life. And he's saying, no, the body is important. But don't, if you read it like a modern American, you're going, you can easily end up making Paul say a whole lot more about the physical body than he is actually saying in context in light of what was going on in Greece. And then he concludes in verse 20, you were bought at a price. He reminds them, of the whole principle of redemption, that Jesus Christ paid the price. Here we have the word agorazo. It's the aorist passive form of agorazo, which is the term for being purchased at the marketplace. So he reminds them you were purchased at a price out of the slave market of sin. As a result of that, because you are a child of God, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. See, they're just glorifying God in the spirit, and he says, glorify your God in your body and in your spirit. It's the total package, body, soul, and spirit, which are God's. Now, next time, we're going to come back and look at chapter 7, which will bring us to the subject of marriage, divorce, and celibacy.
With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the salvation we have that Jesus Christ provided by dying on the cross for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We thank you for the fact that at salvation, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we were completely sanctified and set apart for your service, and that every aspect of our being has significance, and that every part of our person, our body, soul, and spirit, is uh, every part of us is related to that spiritual life, our service to you, and the ability to glorify you. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to, to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of joining a church, making a moral reformation, changing your life, or any other human factor. It is simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study today and that we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.